It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, courtesy of The Athletic, a subscription-based sports news site for real fans. It's a great mix of national voices that you already know, like Jay Glazer, Mike Sandell, Mike Lombardi, the late, great Don Banks, or for The Athletic, too, and awesome local writers. In fact, one of my buddies, Harif Hassan, covers the Vikings, and I was just reading an awesome article that he wrote about this critical offseason for the Vikings. So if you're somebody that likes coverage of your own team, Great, plenty of that, but if you're somebody that likes coverage of other teams like I do, you can get tons of great writers that cover teams besides your own, and as I said, great national writers too. And here's the best part, not only do you get first-rate reporting, but you get all kinds of great analysis, advanced analytics, in-depth player profiles, and more, and it's completely ad-free, no clickbait, just great content. Pro sports, college sports, The Athletic has it all. So if you're not subscribing yet, you're really missing out. Want to get in on the action? I got a great deal for you. Just for being a Play Like a Jet listener, you can go to theathletic.com slash overtime, all lowercase letters, and you'll get yourself 40% off a year subscription. 40%, that's a lot. Go to theathletic.com slash overtime, all lowercase letters, and get all of this fantastic sports coverage in The Athletic for 40% off today. This is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And it's a real treat to have my next guest on because for those of us that were around in the old days before you had every piece of information you could ever want at your fingertips on your phone with the internet and everything, we all had to wait for the newspaper to come out the next day to really get the buzz of what was going on around our favorite football team. Now, in the 80s, WFAN emerged, so we had that. And if it was a real major national story, you might get something on ESPN. But the daily newspapers were a big deal. Rich Tamini in the New York Daily News. Dave Hutchinson in the Newark Star-Ledger. And my next guest, who now writes for NewYorkJets.com, but for a long time was the beat reporter for the New York Jets at the Bergen Record. And I got to tell you, every time I was in New Jersey... I would make sure that I would find somewhere where I could get a copy of the Bergen record and the Star Ledger because I didn't get an opportunity to read those on a regular basis where I grew up. And so anytime I was out there, I would try and get a hold of that stuff so I could read Hutch and my guest right now, who is Randy Lang, who right now works for NewYorkJets.com. Randy, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's awesome to finally have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. Nice uh, to hear that you remembered me from uh, the old days when uh, <laughs> we we only dealt in print and we didn't do anything uh, electronically or online or anything like that. It's it's a brand new world out there for sure, and uh, we're all trying to adapt to it. And uh, 
So, you know, I've got my thing going on with the Jets still, and I, I tweet away and uh, got a Facebook account where I keep track of things. But I still am a big fan of print, and I'm glad you remember when I used to write only in print. Yeah, absolutely. I used to love to read you guys because back then, like I said, everything that you could find out was through the beat. Because, yeah, you might get a little tidbit here and there in the big magazines like SI or Pro Football Weekly or something. And, yeah, you might get a little bit on ESPN if there was a major story. But if we really wanted to know the nooks and crannies of what was going on with the Jets, we had to rely on the beat. And you guys did such a fantastic job of covering the beat. What has that transition been like for you going from doing the daily newspaper thing to now doing digital and also obviously going from working for a media outlet to covering the team for the team? Well, yeah, it definitely was a transition in 2007. I... uh made the break from newspapers. Uh, we were starting to do a little bit of uh, uh, blogging and uh, some audio, some kind of podcast-like things at the record when I was uh, close to leaving. But uh, the record and a lot of newspapers were, were really kind of behind uh, the curve as it was being revealed to us, uh, as the uh, landscape changed for all reporters. Uh, so, you know, it was kind of, uh, all right, we're getting used to it now, but meanwhile, everybody else is doing all these other crazy things and they're blogging every day and, uh, you know, they're putting their stuff up and there's no editors involved and, you know, they would do, uh, audio and video on top of it. And, uh, you know, the record was very slow to adapt to that. Now, of course, they're, they're along with the, for the ride with everybody else. But, you know, I went to the Jets, and that was one of the things that they wanted me for was uh, to be an editor-in-chief. So I was still doing print, and I was still responsible for uh, the yearbook, uh, which I do still to this day. And um, and then we had a, 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 a game program that we put out uh, before every home game for every home game, which we didn't no longer do. Uh, so that was the, the print end of things. But then also there was a blog that they wanted me to do. They called it, uh, you know, uh, uh, I forget what we called it, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but, uh, you know, we, we had, we had me blogging every day. Eric Allen, my good partner still to this day, uh, was blogging away and we had interns come in who, uh, loved the jets and, and got a taste of what it was like to report on the jets. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we went from there, but, uh, we quickly branched out into, uh, Twitter. I remember in 2009, uh, really, I think I tell this story a lot. The Jets at that time had a Twitter account. It did not have 750,000 followers or 750 followers. It had 75 followers. Wow. And it was like, uh, what are we going to do with this thing? Everybody seems to be doing this, you know, the Twitter thing. And so, uh, Eric Allen and I both said, uh, all right, well, Rex Ryan's here. We're starting, uh, you know, the um, the off-season program. They're out there uh, at minicamp. Why don't we go out and tweet about it? And I had had some similar experiences when I worked for the other side, the, the dark side, the Giants, uh, when I was covering them for the uh, Giants Newsweekly. And uh, we didn't have um, Twitter at that time, but I was doing a Twitter-like uh, summary uh, of, uh, let's say, training camp or minicamp uh, where, where you'd have a lot of, uh, you know, three, uh, you know, a lot of three dot items, uh, just observations, quick observations of what's going on out on the field and who looks good and who looks bad and what are they doing. 
And we adapted that to uh, the new format, you know, where it's now instantaneous and it goes to everybody around the world. And we started to grow that, uh, that Twitter follower base. Uh, I can't take credit for the million two hundred thousand or so that the the account has now uh because the the team quickly realized well we got to branch out here we got to have a jets twitter account and then eric will have his account and randy will have his account so we all kind of split up and and did our things uh independently and then we'd rejoin the the group when that was appropriate but uh you know that was the start of it for us was 2009 or so and you know, in the last almost 10 years, a little bit more, uh, look at where the thing is gone and, and where it's going. It's just uh, phenomenal to uh, realize that we're on this roller coaster ride and it has not stopped. And I love the work that you've been doing over at NewYorkJets.com because one thing that I always get nervous about is if somebody who's one of my favorites for a long time doing something moves over to something else and does a different venture is the quality going to be the same? But it's been fantastic, and I really think that the work you've done at NewYorkJets.com is just as good, if not better, than anything that you did with the Bergen record. And this piece on Winston Hill is right up there. Winston Hill finally got into the Hall of Fame, and a lot of us have been calling for this for a while. I think part of the problem with Winston Hill is that he didn't really have a major platform to champion himself. He had passed away and he played a long time ago. So a lot of people didn't remember him anymore, but what a fantastic player he was eight times. He was in all-star games, four times. He was an AFL all-star four times an NFL pro bowler, one of the best offensive linemen in league history. And also you could say one of the best players the Jets have ever had, period. Not only just one of the best offensive linemen they've had. And so he finally gets in. You wrote a great piece about the journey to get him in and quotes from some of the teammates that he had along the offensive line. So tell me a little bit about what you found when you dug in here on Winston Hill. Well, you're right about all of that, Scott. And I appreciate you know you're remembering all that. And, and we had the same kind of uh, issues. I mean, we had obviously not forgotten about Winston. We knew that he should be uh, elevated. He was in the Ring of Honor in the uh, inaugural, inaugural class in 2010. And um, he made all of the all-Jets teams over the years. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the four decades team of, I think it was 2003. And then the, we just did another fan poll for the greatest of all time. And he made that team. And so, you know, the, the fans knew all about him. And so did we inside the, the building, but, um, you're right. I think there was a, a tendency to forget that, uh, this guy, you know, needed to be honored. And, uh, and it was a very real possibility that he wasn't going to be because, you know, time passes and he had died, as you mentioned, in 2016. And, um, it's, you know, his, his greatest years, at least half of his greatest years were spent in the American football league. So, you know, there's all of this, uh, coming together where you just say, man, he's never going to make it. And fortunately the NFL, uh, did a very good thing in conjunction with the pro football hall of fame. And they had the, uh, the centennial celebration this year, hundred years of NFL football and one of the things that they planned as a part of that celebration this year was to expand the field uh, of senior candidates who they were going to induct. It's normally one or two seniors every year that gets inducted, and that goes on a rotating basis. They 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 went to a uh, you know one senior, two contributors one year, and then two and one the next year. So uh, the pace was very slow to get. 
uh, a lot of the old time guys and, and even some of the not so old time guys like in the 60s and 70s to get them recognition but the NFL and the Pro Football Hall of Fame said all right let's let's bring in a an expanded class this year uh in conjunction with the centennial celebration so uh several weeks ago uh, we heard that uh, Winston was in the final field. He was a finalist on just on, on those for that for those ten spots uh, of uh, you know senior candidates. And then uh, last week we found out he indeed had made the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, and that was such a a wonderful, unexpected, pleasantly uh, surprising development. And uh, we we have done our work over the years, but it was not uh, you know we. We didn't feel like maybe it was going to be heard and, uh, you know, Winston would be forgotten, but he was not forgotten. And that is such a great heartwarming thing. And it's because of people like Joe Namath who spoke up for him. And, uh, of course, Weeb Eubank is no longer with us, but in his day, uh, he spoke up for him. And, uh, you know, all of the, the players he went up against, uh, you know, and, and those are the kinds of things that we are still hoping will win the day for Joe Klecko, as we've talked about uh, but right now it's Winston Hill's turn, and Winnie, uh, you know, is is going into the Hall of Fame, and we'll hear about. We've already heard about it; it's official. But we'll hear about it again uh, the night uh, before the Super Bowl this year, when the whole class is announced, and and the five modern era guys are are inducted. Uh, that'll be revealed the night of, uh, the night before the Super Bowl, and then we'll go to you know the uh, the Hall of Fame ceremonies in august but the seniors won't be uh fully nominated or enshrined at that event they will have their own week or, or several days in september in canton where that will be just devoted to the 10 senior candidates to be inducted into this year's hall of fame and so winston hill will be very much a part of the landscape in the nfl from now until september when he is finally uh you know the final steps are made and and his memory is that it would then be enshrined in, in the uh, football shrine in Canton, Ohio. Randy, there are some awesome stories in this article that you wrote. The two guys that gave the best stories here that were quoted were Randy Rasmussen and John Schmidt, who played on the offensive line with Winston Hill. And John Schmidt was a guest on this podcast. We did a 10-part series on the 1968 season. We went through the whole season bit by bit, and he had some things to say about Winston Hill there. One of them was that he never met a person that had a stronger grip in his entire life. And that makes sense because he had a similar quote to you in this article about the fact that he felt like Winston Hill must have been playing with glue on his hands, right? Yeah, he did. He he made that comment in uh, in his introduction in explaining why uh, he loved Winston and why Winston should be in the hall. And um, you know, I think the the quote I'm looking for right now. He says, um, uh, "This is uh, you know they were captains back then together, but." But he said Winston was the spiritual leader of the team. And uh, and that on top of the fact that he was, you know, an all-pro offensive tackle, which he was. Uh, but, of course, the first four years were uh, in the AFL as uh, a member of the AFL All-Star uh, rosters. And then when the, the leagues merged in 1970, Winston made the transition and he became uh, a pro bowler for the last four times. Uh, in the merged leagues, which, you know, kind of validated the, uh, uh, you know, the um, honors that he received in the AFL. Uh, but uh, as uh, Schmitty said, uh, 
you know, it was like he had glue on his hands. He was a great teammate and a great guy. And, uh, you know, the one thing that a lot of people mentioned to me when I wrote this story, and I also have another story that will be going up soon on Winston's immediate family and how they're celebrating uh, his induction and his memory. Uh, so that has yet to be, uh, uh, you know, yet to go up on NewYorkJets.com, but that's coming. Uh, but everybody kind of said the same thing. You know, it took a long time to get here, but we're glad it did and, and it needed to happen. And it's great that it did happen for such a, a fantastic guy. I wanted to bring up what Randy Rasmussen talked about with Winston Hill as well. There were two stories in your piece that really caught my eye. One of them was a story about how Winston Hill took Randy Rasmussen under his wing when Randy was a rookie and taught him how to pass block at the NFL level. The other was a more amusing anecdote to me about the fact that Winston Hill would show up early every year at training camp to see who the competition was. And I say it was amusing to me because who was going to be competition for Winston Hill at that point? But I think it tells you a lot about what a great player he was, what a great leader he was, and what a great person he was, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Rasmussen story was um, basically Winston was, was telling Randy how to hold, <laughs> which was funny. But, uh, you know, he, he, he went to uh, Rasmussen after a practice, and he said, Randy, I noticed you're having a little trouble pass blocking. And Randy said, yeah, I'm having a little bit of trouble. This was Randy's rookie year back in, I think it was 1965. And, um, you know, Winston said, all right, here, grab my shoulder pads. And he, he meant right down around the breastplate on the side where the pads come down and you, you lace them together. And he says, now I want you to lift it and, and pull up as hard as you can. And lo and behold, the shoulder pads went up around his chin. And, uh, and uh, Winston told him, he says, uh, you know, now you see, Randy, I can't do anything. And Randy says, well, you know, Winston, that's holding. <laughs> and he says, uh, Winston smacked him as hard as he could. Uh, and, uh, and said, all right, let's do it again. You know, he kind of went into drill sergeant mode on him. And so Rasmussen got the hang of this thing. And, and Winston's line to him was, you know, uh, you know, that's, uh, now you're pass blocking in the American football league. You're doing it the AFL way. <laughs> now, I don't think every block was holding. And certainly that was, you know, something that, uh, you know, you did as a last resort, but, uh, you also had to use every trick in the book, especially in the AFL in those days to survive because it was a uh, you know a, a tough game and uh, and of course they were also I think ultimately the, their goal was to merge with the NFL which they did finally but it took a decade to get together in 1970 so there was a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, urgency going on to play well and, and of course when you went to the Super Bowl to do well in the Super Bowl and that didn't happen the first two games when the Packers uh, as we all remember uh, you know took care of the Raiders and the Chiefs but then came the Jets and the Colts in Super Bowl three, January 12th, 1969, in the Orange Bowl. And uh, Winston Hill was the left tackle protecting Joe Namath's flanks, uh, his blind side especially. And also, he was one of the lead blockers on 19 straight, that, that great play that, uh, uh, th that the Jets had inscribed on the inside of their Super Bowl rings, the, the uh, name of the play, 19 straight, which... Uh, led to so many great runs by Emerson Boozer, but but by Matt Snell, and uh, they would run it off left side, and Emerson would get out in front, and Randy uh, Rasmussen would be left guard. He'd be out pulling wide, and there's Winston Hill leading the way. And uh, the only touchdown that the Jets scored in Super Bowl three was run off of 19 straight with Winston Hill blocking uh, and leading the way for uh, Matt Snell. So, 
you know, those are, you know, some of the, the great memories, um, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I wasn't at that game. I was a little too young for that, but I did remember watching it on TV and I've watched that play over many times. And, um, you know, the artistry and, and the precision that they ran it uh, was great. And it was, you know, all uh, or, or a lot of it was because of Winston Hill's contributions. Joe Namath has said that. And um, I remember another quote, which I did not use in this piece, but Emerson Boozer said, you know, uh, Winston Hill, he seems like such a nice guy. He's, he's a great man. He's friendly. He's a family man. He was vicious on the field. <laughs> and so it's like, how do you square those two things? Well, that's just because that's what you got to be on the field. And that was Winston Hill. You know, he was a vicious, but a, a certainly, a, you know, a fair player. And, uh, you know, he, he played by the rules, uh, unless, of course, it, it got, uh, you know, he had to hold somebody uh, legally. <laughs> but uh, he was one of the greats in those days. And, uh, and, and that's uh, what got him started on the way to uh, many years later uh, this year being uh, admitted to the Hall of Fame. Incredible strength and agility A lot of people don't know that Winston Hill Was actually a world class tennis player Before he got so entrenched in football So he had that tremendous footwork And agility that you get from playing tennis Just an all around terrific Offensive tackle The Jets would be lucky to have anybody Half as good as him on the roster in 2020 and beyond I also thought it was amazing to read back And remember how tough Winston Hill was Because Randy, you chronicled in here And I had forgotten about some of this stuff How in the 1965 preseason He played through a broken leg And then somebody stepped on his throat in 1974 And he kept playing after that So there was really nothing this guy couldn't do Well, yeah, and that was another part of his game Was not just that he was a technician And that he was... Uh, you know, tough and mean, and uh, he got the job done, but he also was indestructible. Uh, he had 195 consecutive games played with the Jets, uh, and 174 of them were starts, and uh, those are both records are still to this day records for the Jets' offensive linemen, and uh, only a few players have, have exceeded the uh, games played. I think Randy Rasmussen got ahead of them finally, uh, when right before he retired, and uh, Pat Leahy, I'm pretty sure played in that many games. But you know that that's an incredible run for anybody. And you know Winston just never came out of the game, even when, as you mentioned, he he had a broken leg, uh, and that was in the preseason. So I think he might have missed a preseason game, but he never missed any regular season games because of that. Or, you know, when he got stepped on, probably couldn't speak for a, a few weeks because his throat was crushed, but he kept on playing because that was the way he was. And, and that's the way it was in those days and still is to this day to a certain extent. But they don't make him quite like Winston Hill anymore. And, and that's why I think uh, the NFL and the Hall of Fame finally came around to saying, you know, it's time to, to admit number 75 into the, the hallowed shrine. It's about time, and hopefully Joe Klecko is next. And not that I want to compare anybody to Joe Klecko. I'm certainly not doing that. But the Jets got another nice surprise on the defensive line this year, one of Klecko's old spots in Foley Fadakasi. And, Randy, you wrote a nice little profile about Foley over at NewYorkJets.com. Very surprising season for him after last year. A lot of people had written him off, sixth-round pick out of UConn. But he had a really impactful season, especially in the run game. Yeah, he did, Scott. He was um, he he came on, and I think that was a pleasant surprise too for this year's team. Uh, 
he was not alone. I think um, uh, Jet fans who who appreciate great run defense got a lot of it this year. The Jets were number two in the NFL in uh, yards allowed per game, rushing yards allowed per game, and also rushing yards allowed per carry. And, um, you know, I mean, they weren't perfect. I mean, there were a few games. I think Leonard Fournette uh, had a big run against them. But then after he had that big run, they shut him down in game seven against Jacksonville. And, you know, they, they had a very good, outstanding run defense. And Foley Fadukasi was a part of that. And he, he became, I mean, after the, his rookie year, I think he played three plays the entire season. Uh, it was probably late in the season. And he just was not used. He was not ready. And uh, the, the previous regime, Todd Bowles' regime, uh, didn't, didn't use him. Uh, but he was, you know, he stayed around. He's a very conscientious guy. And um, he wants, wants to do better. Um, you know, he'll, he'll watch anybody and listen to anybody to help him do better. And uh, lo and behold, he was better. And he played, uh, he was not, you know, in the starting lineup, but he was a member of the five or six man rotation that they had going the whole year. And um, he was making plays. Um, I think I had him for seven tackles for loss or no gain, which was, I think, about fifth on the team. Uh, but he did not play the fifth most snaps on defense. He was down around 10 or so. I think he had like uh, 325, if I remember, snaps on defense. Uh, so, I mean, he was a regular contributor, but not one of the, the guys you see out there all the time. But when he was out there, he was making plays. He was in the backfield. He smacked down a pass uh, in one game. He got his first pro sack. Uh, so he was visible. And, um, you know, you add him to the equation with uh, Quentin Williams and uh, you know we had um, Kyle uh, you know Phillips was just phenomenal as a, as a rookie free agent um, you know out of Tennessee and uh, he had a very fine season so you add Foley to that and, and you know we had uh, Nate Shepard you know throw him in there and uh, and of course the veterans McClendon and, and uh, you know Henry Anderson uh, you know it was a very good unit and uh, if there was a little more stability behind them uh, and, uh, and, you know, not to say that the, the linebackers and the corners especially, uh, you know, didn't do their best, but that was those were two injury-ravaged uh, positions on the defense. Um, but uh, they, they also did their best in, in implementing Greg Williams and, and uh, Adam Gase's next-man-up philosophy. But if there was a little more stability behind that defensive line, this defense might have been uh, not number two, but number one and, and might have, you know, been a um, you know a little bit uh, you know more of a factor in in preventing the one and seven start that the Jets had to come back from and did come back from with their six and two finish. So, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, but you know that does bode well for next year, and it looks like Foley Fadukasi may be a part of that along with these other guys. And Andre Carter, the Jets' defensive line coach, really seems pleased with him. Yeah, Andre Carter, you know, is is a uh, great name uh, on his own, and he came to the Jets and uh, Adam Gase's first staff, and and you got to give Carter. I mean, uh, he probably didn't get enough credit because Greg Williams got you know the lion's share of uh, you know the the uh, credit for the turnaround on on the defense and just how these guys played, even though they were shedding bodies every week. I mean, middle linebacker, inside linebacker, they must have gone through five of them. Uh, you know, cornerback, there was a different starting combination every week. I had I had them for eight different starters at cornerback this season, which was the most by the Jets except for that 1987 strike season. So you had two other, uh, you know, guys who, who never returned, uh, 
as as replacement players uh, who got in games three to five and six more during the season. So that was eight. But that's the only other season that rivaled this season in the number of starting corners that the Jets had to put on the field. You don't want to do that if you don't have to. But if you do have to, it's great to have the kind of guys that the Jets had and to have the coaching that they got, you know, from uh, Greg Williams and from Denard Wilson, the, the DB's coach. And then, of course, uh, you go through the list and all the coaches and, uh, you know, Carter on the defensive line kept things together and kept, kept the rotation going. So, you know, it was, it was a very interesting mix. And uh, Greg Williams gets a lot of credit for it, as he should. Uh, but the, the position coaches had a lot to say about it, too. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hoopin' with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hoopin' with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Depth was a big part of the story of the defense this year because, as you said, they were finding guys that people had never heard of to come in and play well. You talked about Kyle Phillips, the undrafted free agent. He played very well. Another guy that did and helped stop the run in a big way is James Burgess, who you profiled as well. He's going to be a restricted free agent in March. It sounds like he wants to be here. He really enjoyed his role with the Jets this year and playing for Greg Williams, or at least it sure feels that way based on the article that you wrote at NewYorkJets.com. Yeah, I got that impression too. And, um, you know, James Burgess, um, you know, if he had been playing from opening day, who knows what the season might have looked like. He only came in, I think, after six games where he was, he had been on the, he was, um, you know, on the preseason roster. He was cut. He was brought back and went on the practice squad for the first five weeks of the season, six weeks, and didn't really play until, you know, maybe I think it was the Jacksonville game in week seven. And all of a sudden, you see this guy flashing all over the field, making tackles and, you know, playing behind the line, especially. And, you know, even spotting Kyle Phillips that, those six games uh 
you know, um, before he got to play, he finally caught Kyle because Kyle was was the uh, hands down leader in tackles behind the line up until Burgess caught him and then passed him the last two weeks of the season. So, you know, that's a good sign. And Burgess was, says he's very happy to be here. He never got the chance to kind of get this opportunity. Now he has it. He wants to make the most of it. He spoke very highly of Adam Gase's uh, contribution and, of course, G-Dub, you know, too. But he, I didn't even ask him about Gase, and he was very happy with, uh, you know, what Gase uh, uh, enabled him to do and, and uh, you know, setting the stage for him, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, on defense. And um, so, you know, there, there are a number of players who have spoken well of the head coach and, of course, the defensive coordinator. Uh, so that uh, that's one reason if we can segue, I just, you know, I, I think there's, there's that, you know, the fan unrest out there uh, regarding Adam Gase, uh, you know, you, you know, it's out there and uh, it, it obviously the season didn't start well, but there are a lot of players on this team that still believe in him, believe in the foundation that, that he wanted to, to lay down and did lay down. And so, you know, you, you don't know for sure if six and two over the last eight games is an indication of what's ahead. Um, but there is that possibility, and there are a lot of players in that locker room who, you know, were were not being asked about Adam Gase, and then spoke highly of him uh, as they went out the door uh, after Baggy Day to go uh, back home and uh, get a little rest in, and then start the process all over again. So, um, you know, we'll we'll be hearing about that some more. But, you know, I, I just uh, thought I'd throw that out there because, you know, the players definitely aren't sharing the same. Uh, you know, uh, the same talk that, that the fan base may be sharing. And, and I don't think it's unanimous in the fan base, but there are a lot of fans who are upset um, at the way things started, not big fans of the, the new head coach. But, uh, you know, he's getting another year. He should get another year. And, um, you know, we're going to see what happens if he and, and the rest of the Jets, uh, you know, the trainers, the strength co- coaches, and all the, uh, you know, players, the doctors, and so on, can get this injury thing under control. It's very hard to do. Football, as Rex Ryan always used to say, is a 100% injury sport. Uh, but if uh, Adam Gase and uh, his people can figure this thing out, there's a really good chance that the 6-2 and two, uh, part of the season won't come in the second half. It'll come in the first half of a playoff run. So uh, I'm optimistic. But, um, you know, there is that feeling that the players – did enjoy playing for the guy and uh you know we'll see if that carries through to 2020 randy you're much more optimistic than i think the fan base is based on what's gone down the last 10 years it's been a rough ride but i'm hoping that you're 100 percent right because i really want to see this team get into the playoffs for the first time since january of 2011 we'll see what joe douglas is able to do in the offseason but one position that they definitely have to think about is the kicker position a lot of people are looking to move on from sam ficken but i don't know based on your article it looks like he may have been a little more valuable than some people think what did you find when you took a deep dive into what sam ficken did for the jets in 2019 yeah sam was a an interesting case because um you know obviously the the jets struggled to um, you know, find the replacement for Jason Myers, who, in my opinion, uh, maybe they shouldn't have let him get away, uh, but they did. He went to Seattle, did all right, and uh, got in the playoffs. So uh, you know, but uh, the Jets went through several kickers before they got to Ficken in Game Two, and um, he wasn't perfect, and uh, that's obvious by uh, you know you look at his numbers. Uh, his biggest struggle seemed to be you know from 45 yards out, maybe 48 yards out. 
but mm, that doesn't matter. I mean, you're a pro kicker. You got to hit those kicks or at least a good percentage of them. So those things, you know, were against him, but, um, you know, he has something about him that, you know, you just say, all right, well, if I, I could see definitely bringing in competition, um, you know, which they did, they signed Brett Maher, the former Cowboys kicker as a, uh, you know, reserve future, uh, signee in January, uh, earlier this month. Uh, so he's going to have competition. If he beats out the competition, then so be it. If he doesn't, then we'll move on to the next kicker. Uh, but you know, I, I like Sam's attitude and, as he said, he says, listen, he, you know, he knows he didn't make all the kicks that he needed to. He had some that he wanted back, but he feels like he never, you know, missed a kick that he had to make. And I, you, know, you say, well, all right, maybe that's true. I mean, he did beat Miami with a, a last second kick, a walk off field goal. And, um, you know, he did well against the Steelers that he, uh, when he needed to, to give the Jets the cushion, uh, you know, to be a, a team that wanted desperately to get to the playoffs and didn't do it. Um, and you know, I mean, you can point to the games. He missed those kicks that he should have made. And you can point to the ones where, Hey, you know, all right, he might have something going there. I don't know. Uh, that's what this game is all about finding, you know, you don't have a, a, a large database to choose from. If you're a coach or a scout, uh, you, you just have those 16 games and practices and you try to extrapolate from practices to games. And, and then you see what he can do in the games and limited opportunities and, um, you know, I, I want to believe in Sam Ficken and, um, yeah, and yet I think it's certainly appropriate to bring in competition. So let's do it and let's have a, a kicking competition. But, you know, I'm not ready to, you know, say goodbye, Sam. I want to see who they bring in to beat him out. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Randy, last bit of business. I wanted to talk to you about this quick hits article that you wrote that has a bunch of little factoids that I thought were really interesting. So I figured we would go through them one by one, and then you can just tell me a little bit about each one. You had some fun facts mm-hmm. about Jamal Adams, for starters. Now, we know what happened with him earlier in the season. There was some turmoil. It looked like there might come a time where he was going to get traded, if not by the trade deadline, then at the end of the season. Now, I'm not so sure. It looks like we may be back where we were before, where he's Mr. Jet again, and perhaps Joe Douglas were works to try and get him signed to an extension this offseason that remains to be seen but you had some interesting stuff about Jamal Adams in your article that involves jet history and also NFL history some really eye-opening numbers yeah I mean uh, Jamal had that run um, uh, I forget where the games were it was like game eight to ten or something like that Washington was definitely a part of it where where he racked up six and a half sacks in three games and you know, I mean, if you follow the NFL, you know that defensive backs do not do that. Uh, I mean, even the guys you send every once in a while from, you know, safeties in the box or maybe you, you blitz them off the corner. I mean, they're not going to get that many sacks in a season. He had it in a three- or four-game span. That broke the Jets' record for DBs uh, for sacks in a season, uh, which I believe Kerry Rhodes was the one player to have five sacks uh, back in the early 2000s. 
And um, so, you know, Jamal broke that record. He was trying to get the NFL record, which Adrian Wilson, I believe, was the uh, the guy for the Arizona Cardinals who, who did in 2008, if I remember correctly, where he had eight sacks in the regular season that year. And uh, Jamal said, oh, I'm definitely going to break it, you know, not no, no ifs, ands, or buts. Well, he didn't get there. But uh, the one thing I did research, um, you know, you have to package a few stats together to get here, but, uh, and it's not a record as such. It's more like a distinction. Uh, the NFL, you know, Elias Sports Bureau does not do this as a record in its NFL record books, but it's still darned interesting that Adams became the first defensive back basically in NFL history going back to 1981, which is when uh, the league started recording sacks on an individual basis. He's the first DB to have six plus sacks and two plus touchdown returns in a season since 1981. Uh, and then, you know, I, I went further and just said, that, well, is he, who else has done that at any position? And he was the first to do it uh, in the last, what, five seasons. Uh, 2014 was the last time anybody uh, at linebacker basically uh, uh, was able to duplicate that six plus sacks and two plus return TDs in a season. Um, so, you know, Jamal did kind of make NFL history and, uh, you know, he's, he didn't make, he didn't set the record he wanted to, but, uh, you know, he did make his second pro bowl. He's going to make his second start. If I'm not mistaken, uh, he probably will try to win his second, you know, defensive player of the game award. And uh, all of that will be a prelude to, um, you know, how he looks as he starts, uh, the next off season and what the Jets will do regarding uh, trying to nail him down for the long term. I don't have any information on that. Uh, they don't talk to me about uh, you know what they're doing contract wise until it happens. Uh, but you know, uh, Joe Douglas at the end of the season had nothing but great things to say about Jamal Adams. You know, he didn't back off on his uh, you know view that hey, listen, if somebody calls me, I'm going to talk to them. Um, but um, I think there's an understanding uh, between Jamal and Joe Douglas and the team that, you know, they're happy together and uh, let's see if we can keep together. That would be great. Everybody was psyched up about Jamal Adams at the end of the season, but some people were disappointed in the performance of Le'Veon Bell. But you found some numbers that really put that performance in perspective and give fans much more of a reason to be optimistic going into 2020. Yeah, Le'Veon was a, an interesting case. I mean, I, I think there was a lot of optimism early on that, all right, we got Le'Veon Bell. I mean, this is great. Uh, it did not go the way that um, Le'Veon or the Jets offense uh, or the line or Sam Darnold or Adam Gase wanted it to go. Uh, he had a you know very low, I think it was 3.2 yards per carry, uh, lowest of his career. His, his um, yardage was his lowest. Uh, but you know you had to dig kind of into the uh, into the weeds to to see what was happening. Um, it, you know I I didn't find uh, any back in in Jets history. I'm thinking uh, I, I charted it up and said uh, and I, I keep my own yards after first contact numbers. And he was he had um, it's like 2.19 yards after first contact and. Um, that that was compared to 1.03 yards before first contact. The first the, the before first contact is very low. Uh, you know you're usually talking about uh, you know running backs are getting two yards before first contact, two after they're four yards per carry. 
guy. Um, you know, Le'Veon at 1.03, very low, but the 2.19 figure after first contact uh, was very high. And uh, uh, it was, in fact, the, the percentage of after contact, the first contact, was the second highest um, among uh, the all the Jets running backs uh, with 100 carries since 2013. Uh, the only one higher was Chris Ivory uh, back in 13. He had 70% of his yards after first contact, and uh, Le'Veon at 68% of his yardage. So what does that say? I mean, that's a lot of mumbo-jumbo maybe, but, you know, you, you try to, you know, bring some meaning to these kinds of numbers is why you keep them. And, um, you know, I, my view was Le'Veon was getting hit a lot at and behind the line of scrimmage. Uh, the Jets offensive line, similar to the, the cornerbacks and the linebackers, an injury-ravaged group. Um, you know, they, they did their best, but every week it seemed, or towards the end of the season was almost every week, they were, had a new starter in, and um, they were trying to do the best they could for Le'Veon, but uh, everyone knows Le'Veon's rushing style with the Steelers, and he had a veteran offensive line who knew how to block for him and how to sustain blocks for him and give him a chance to uh, use his patient running style before he burst through the openings and, and did the damage that he did there. Uh, and that wasn't happening early on. And it's, you know, what can you say? I mean, the Jets had an offensive line that was battered and bruised and was having a little trouble meshing. And uh, Le'Veon was one of the players who struggled because of that. But as the season went on, he got a little more traction and the offensive line got a little more traction for him. And he, you know, he finally, you know, hit a little bit of a an uptick. It wasn't a great uptick. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But, you know, his second half, his, set, his last third of games was better than his first two thirds. And so, you know, you say, well, I mean, it seems like, you know, well, they could trade him, I guess, if they wanted to. But uh, he's under contract. And, you know, why don't we see if we can make this thing work and, and get a better offensive line to protect Sam Darnold and to block for Le'Veon Bell. So we'll see how that shakes out in the offseason. But I think that there was, you know, it was a little hard to tell, but I think there definitely was some progress in the, the last half, the last third of the season for Le'Veon Bell. And uh, there's promise for him to, to return to the, uh, you know, the form that he had in his um, five seasons with the Steelers. The hope is that Le'Veon Bell can be a major weapon for Sam Darnold in 2020. The way that the tight ends have been for Sam Darnold, first in his rookie year in 2018 with the emergence of Christopher Herndon, and then in 2019 with the emergence of Ryan Griffin after Herndon first was suspended and then got injured. You had some interesting tidbits about the Jets in the tight end position. Well, yeah. it's uh, when, when you looked at it, you figured, well, this is Chris Herndon's group, and he's going to have a great uh, – campaign as soon as he comes back from his uh, uh his suspension uh so it took him six games to do that and he got back and then he got hurt in the one game back and he was gone so it wasn't chris herndon's group and so you had to say what's going to happen at this position well ryan griffin happened at the position and that was a very positive development and kudos to the jets you know for uncovering him and uh, bringing him into the fold and um, even though he ended the year on IR, like a lot of players did, he, he did enough that up until uh, the last three or four games, I think he got hurt in the uh, the thirteenth uh, game. Uh, but um, you know, he signed a an extension to stay with the team. And one reason or one reason that's a good idea was because of the numbers that I came up with. 
Uh, I like to keep track of not just what everybody else does with quarterbacks, which is the passer rating, but I like to apply the passer rating categories. Uh, there's, there's four of them. There's completion percentage, yards per attempt, um, interception rate, touchdown rate. And you can apply those four things to not only quarterbacks, but to receivers. And so I did that, and I, I do that every year and just see what happens. And uh, lo and behold, uh, the tight end position as a group had its best year in a long time since, uh, I think I said, 2000, uh, as far as the receiver rating goes. And that's the passer rating, but only as it applies to uh, the receivers and, and the balls they caught as opposed to the balls that the quarterback threw. And so you know what a good passer rating is. It's over 100. It's 110. It's 120. I had the tight ends as a group uh, compiling a 122.0 receiver rating, um, you know, for the uh, season. And primarily that was Ryan Griffin doing his thing. But, um, you know, you had, uh, you know, Daniel Brown had contributed a little bit there. And I think he had two touchdown passes and uh, did a little little work there. And if Chris Herndon can rejoin that group and tra- uh, Trayvon Wesco got a little work, a little, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, he had a little bit of prominence in the offense. Uh, you would hope to see that increase. The, this tight end group can be a definite, uh, you know, it's not going to be, well, let's let them block and maybe we'll throw them the ball once in a while. It can become a very big part of the passing offense. Sam Darnold definitely liked finding Ryan Griffin in the, in the formation. And last year he loved finding Chris Herndon. So this is all, you know, I mean, the reason I do these things are to say, listen, Jets fans is not, you know, you don't have to be down in the mouth. There's good things ahead. Let's hang in there. <laughs> so tight end is one of those positions to give us all hope for 2020, uh, not just for Sam Donald, but for the, the passing game and the offense in general. And for special teams, because, Randy, we've talked about what a great job Greg Williams did with the defense, but you can't emphasize enough how great Brant Boyer did with special teams. Lachlan Edwards continued to play really well, and the emergence of Vincent Smith, who the Jets had plucked off the Houston Texans practice squad. Both of those guys were key contributors on special teams. You had some cool tidbits about both of them. Yeah, well, Vincent, uh, I mean, uh, he, he's a, a very fast guy. I think I quoted Brant Boyer saying, Vincent is pretty damn fast. Well, that's pretty good uh, <laughs> praise from the special teams coordinator. And, um, you know, I did mostly, I think that one note was on his receptions. Uh, but he also did a very good job on kickoff returns when he got the ball. And then in particular, we have Lachlan, you know, Edwards, who, um, you know, I, I think there's also a feeling among Jet fans, hey, you know, I don't know, maybe it's time to move on and, you know, he had a few bad punts that I remember. And I mean, all of that is true, but, um, but, you know, let's look at the positives because Lachlan Edwards is a, you know, he's a, a studious guy. I mean, he wants to do well. Uh, I think he's a, a student of his craft and, um, you know, it's, it's easy to overlook the fact. I mean, he, he still continues to break franchise records in, um, uh, I think the gross uh, average he did not break this year, but his net broke his his own record, his own franchise record of forty point eight last year. His gross, his net, I'm sorry, his net average this past season was forty one point six. He is doing good work with his coverage teams, and and that of course is also a reflection on Brant Boyer and the Jets coverage teams. Uh, but you know, Lachlan Edwards is still, um, you know finding his way. I mean, he's, you know, we, we all know his story came from Australia and 
Sam Houston State and, you know, made it to the Jets and kind of hung in there. And every year does a little bit better. And then sometimes, you know, you, you get a little impatient waiting for him. But uh, I still think he's definitely someone. Again, if you want to bring in competition, that's fine. I think that's a good idea. But, um, you know, let's let's see if Lachlan can win the job again because he's done a number of, uh, you know, great things, especially the, the one thing I think you were pointing to was his um, inside the 20-piece touchbacks, uh, which is, you know, 9.3, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, let's see, 9.3%, you know, it's a ratio. Uh, his uh, ratio of inside 20 touchbacks was 9, nine to 1, basically. He only had three touchbacks the entire season, uh, Laughlin Edwards. That's outstanding in the NFL. That's not just outstanding in Jets history, uh, but in the NFL. So all of these things tend to make me believe that Laughlin Edwards, you know, is, is probably, you know, I mean, he's, he's the odds on favorite where the Jets are not cutting him. Uh, but I think they definitely will uh, look to bring in some competition, as they should, for him and for kicker. And, um, you know, let's see uh, if we can improve the position. And if not, let's make these guys as good as they can be. We got one Jet great headed to the Hall of Fame, and it's a fairly safe bet that at least one other is going to follow him there someday, but not quite as safe as the protection that you'll get in your home with Simply Safe. If there's a break in, Simply Safe uses real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime, and that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you when anyone's approaching your home. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard the inside. And Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, and carbon monoxide poisoning with 24 hour a day, 7 day a week monitoring by live security professionals. Protect your home with Simply Safe. Go to simplysafe.com slash overtime today and get free shipping on your order plus a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash overtime to save on home security today. Simplysafe.com slash overtime. So Randy, to sum things up, Winston Hill headed to the Hall of Fame. Some of these guys on the Jets like Jamal Adams may follow him one day. I don't know if that's necessarily the path for Vincent Smith and Lachlan Edwards, but still emerging presence on the special team. So some things to look forward to in 2020, and I'm really glad that we were able to talk about them with Randy Lang, who's covering the Jets for NewYorkJets.com, but for many years was covering the Jets on the Jets beat over at the Bergen Record, a legend of the Jets beat. Randy, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back soon. In the meantime, for anybody that wants to follow you on social media, check out your work. How can they get a hold of you? How can they read your work? Well, uh, let's see. Twitter is at RLangJets, and um, the the Jets are still at NYJets, and Eric Allen, I'll throw him in too, at E. Allen Jets. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we love to... Uh, have you participate with us on Twitter and, uh, uh, you know, you can always reach us, uh, you know, DM us or, um, whatever you wish to do. Uh, not, I don't do as much on Facebook as far as, um, uh, posting a lot of stuff. Uh, we, we actually use Facebook a lot more, uh, a few years ago when we were accepting comments to the website through Facebook. And so I would monitor, um, you know, moderate comments, uh, through Facebook, we, which we don't do it now. Um, but you know, you could find me on Facebook too, I suppose. Uh, so come on and send me, uh, anything you want to, you want to throw at me and uh, I'll try to respond to you in a timely fashion. 
And I really appreciate the uh, the time. Uh, for ha- Thanks for having me on, Scott. Appreciate it. Pleasure was all mine. Like I said, I hope you'll come back soon. Make sure that you're following Randy on Twitter. Make sure that you're reading his work over at NewYorkJets.com. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.